episode of Fratello on Air. I'm Mike Stockton, coming to you from Frankfurt Online, Germany. And I'm Balash Renzi, coming to you from Karlsruhe, Germany. Hey, Balash, how are you? Hey, Mike, I'm good. How's yeah. things with you? Not too bad, not too bad. We're uh, doing a couple episodes here today, right? So oh, yeah. it's not, not too much has changed since we started the last one, although we took a little bit of a break. And I am, yeah, going to head over to the U S mm-hmm. for a work thing for a few days. And I will be in the uh, city of, as I told you of Germain Dupree, the, the hometown of Germain Dupree here, yeah. <laughs> or the place where, uh, Dominique Wilkins used to, uh, oh, sail yeah. to the basket. Oh yeah. But never won a championship. No, never won. But man, he was good. Nick was good. Wasn't he? Have, are you watching uh, Winning Time on HBO? No. What is this? Um, the show, right? It's a show, yeah. It's about the... Well, it's um, <clears throat> a story about the Los Angeles Lakers starting in 1979 when the bus... Well, Jerry Buss, Dr. Buss, buys the team and Magic comes to the team. Mm-hmm. But nobody from the Buss family, uh, neither Magic, is are involved in the in the show. So it's basically just a a dramatized version of what the creators thought happened. Okay. Um, but it's funny cause you know, they have Jerry West, they have Pat Riley and all those guys. And of course, magic and Kareem and, 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 uh, the bus family. So it's just, it's basically just a, an, an imagination of how things could have gone or could have went down. I don't know if it's, it's the case. Um, everybody who is portrayed like magic and genie bus, they all say that it's not true, mm. but it's, I mean, it's entertainment. It's John C. Riley playing, uh, Dr. Bus and, oh, wow. um, yeah. And, um, um, Adrian Brody's playing Pat Riley. Um, so quite a, quite a star studded show and it's fun to watch. What is that on? I think it's on, is it an HBO? Mm, I think it's on HBO. I'm not sure. I need to check. Just one second. Let me check. Uh, winning time. Um, it's, well, it's on Apple TV. You can watch it. Okay. Maybe I'll try that out. That sounds pretty uh, good. It's HBO. Yeah, it's uh, HBO. Sounds like an HBO show. So HBO original, Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. Cool. Yeah. Right. Love to check that out. Nice. Yeah. Very good. So, yeah, today we're just going to talk a little bit about Breitling. We're not going to talk about favorite models and things like that, but we'll talk about the event that went down the other week where mm-hmm. Breitling showed off its new cosmonaut which is a limited edition watch but it was a it was a really neat event that i'll talk about uh also the after event got to see just a lot of people that we connect with collectors mm-hmm. and, and just friends and talk a little bit about the watch and then we are going to segue into an interview i did with fred mandelbaum 
which talks about the history of the cosmonaut and how it came about and why. And hopefully you'll appreciate it. It's, it was taken in a conference hall with some noise in the background, some glasses clinging and, and stuff like that. So a little bit more of a bustling atmosphere, but I, I, I think it, it hopefully came out well and it's always a pleasure to talk to Fred. So hopefully you'll, hopefully you'll uh, enjoy that as, as a listener. I know that some other podcasts Fred has been on recently because there were a number of us there doing interviews with him, but uh, yeah, uh, he, he's, he's a good friend and hopefully it will intrigue you. So. Oh, I'm I'm sure it will. I mean, I, I I listen to the the audio, and I think it's okay. I mean, it is what it is, but that's just uh, that just happens when when you know when you're around. In a big hall, like right? Yeah, exactly. That's that's totally normal, I think. Yeah. So then, um, let's move on to the Hangalengs controller, and mm-hmm. why don't you go first today? Okay, so um, I picked a a piece that I've probably. I think I've, we, yeah, I've definitely talked about it before I picked before, and um, this is my Eterna with the eight fifty two uh, caliber. And the reason I picked it is because if uh, you guys go on Fratello and read the article I wrote about this, um, the one interesting thing about about this watch, other than its size and movement, is its inscription. And the inscription says um, Johann Müller, uh, blah 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 blah, it's a German inscription. Uh, <clears throat> for Treyer Dienste, 1928-1953, uh, Eisenberg Cruz. And there's a logo above it, which says Von or Von Roll, V-O-N-R-O-L-L. And so in this article, I talk about how this um, Von Roll is actually a, a huge company. It's a steel company, still in production uh, today. It's a, it's called the Von Roll Holding and uh, it's a, a Swiss industrial group, basically. Um, it operates around the world, but it's it was found, founded in Switzerland. And um, so, around the ninety, so this this inscription says nineteen fifty three. And I think in nineteen fifty three they were uh, celebrating their hundred and fiftieth anniversary. So they probably gave out a bunch of watches to to different wow. people. And um, so a lot of these eight fifty two um, Eternas that you find online have this inscription. So they probably went shopping to a turn and bought a bunch of watches. And um, cut to last week, I'm in Switzerland traveling from uh, one place to another. And I, in the, in the, I think it was close to um, Le Loc, that area, the valley. I, we were passing by this huge industrial, old, old, you know, like, stone brownstone building industrial facility that seemed to be still in production and the logo on top of the building was von roll nice. so very cool it was actually coming from uh, yeah <laughs> coming from uh so the watch is coming from one of those facilities i mean uh the 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 clues facility i i think it's it's not there um but then some of the inscriptions have different different uh you know like like different locations basically of depending on i guess where the where the the person was working uh, which which um company or factory of, of fundro was working at the time so yeah 
Nice. That's, well, that's pretty, pretty cool. Like sometimes uh, being in the middle of nowhere, you'll see something that somehow sparks familiarity. And in this case, it was. Uh, and this is exactly what happened. Yeah. It's, it's, you don't expect that, I guess, sometimes in Switzerland. But the, the question I had for you on that watch, because I think you've alluded to it before, you know, mm-hmm. you've seen several of these. And do you think that they went to Eterna and basically any watch that looks exactly like that was only made for that company? This is a good question. I, I'm I'm not sure if it was um, a a private order or they just said, "Hey, we want a hundred time only pieces," um, and you know they just for whatever reason they went with Eterna. I think that, but I I haven't read my article or reread my article, uh, but I think that the company's headquarters or 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 a bigger establishment of this holding was close to Grenchen where Eterna was at the time uh you know where well at least the movement for or maybe the whole production was in at Grenchen so maybe it was just an um an obvious choice for them to go with one of the local companies I'm I'm not 100% sure um but and even the ones that have this inscription might have a different uh dial design okay so I ha- I have not compared them, but that would be actually quite interesting to see indeed um, how those those watches uh, look like, like if I, they I, have any. I'd say yeah. ask a Turner, but <laughs> yeah, well, <clears throat> yeah, so it's not going to happen. I think um, I, I I might do a I might do a bit of research, but I remember the 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 gentleman um, who sold me this one, he had like over the 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 months and years this this i bought this a few years ago already uh, a bunch of these so you know i don't know if if he just had an eye for 852s or he knew people from the industry or from this from this factory i, I have no idea but i've seen probably maybe six seven even ten pieces from him but all different inscriptions yeah. of different people maybe but all with the same local phone roll yeah, maybe he collected them or maybe the town where he is or something, flea yeah. markets or estates or whatever, they just popped up, right? Precisely, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm not sure, but it was um, it was quite an interesting hunt. Uh, I, I mean, not hunt, but like research, research for the article. Also the hunt for the 852. And uh, it was just, just random. I just looked at a car window like, whoa, I know that logo. That's on my watch. Yeah, very cool. Well, <laughs> thank you. I'm wearing something very different. And I put on my, I haven't worn this in a while, and I should, I'm wearing my IWC 3536 Timer. Nice. Yeah, so this is the uh, 90s uh, titanium GST watch and Mm -hmm. 2,000 meters and has the integrated bracelet. So to me, this is from what I often refer to as, I think, really an amazing era for IWC. They just made some Mm -hmm. amazing watches. And yeah, I bought this watch 10 plus years ago in Munich. Okay. At the, at the show. No, I actually bought it at Mirtz that, uh, you know, one of the, there's like a handful of different vintage shops in, Mm -hmm. in Munich. And it wasn't cheap, and these have sort of, you know, they haven't really gone up much, which is kind of odd. You're starting to see this era of IWC wake up a bit. Uh, people are realizing that these were just 
really great watches and, you know, didn't have anything really fancy in the movement department. It's got a, an Ida in it, but, uh, which also makes it quite robust. Um, this one's pretty neat because the 12 o'clock hour marker and the hands are filled with tritium. I honestly think mm-hmm. the rest of the markers, if I remember right, are not, which is weird how they differentiated, but maybe that gave a different glow. And mm-hmm. they've definitely gone kind of custardy colored. So it's it's got a bit of that vintage look, but on the other hand, the design is still really contemporary. And I mean, the watch is like it's brand new. The stuff was really scratch resistant. And of course with that design, it doesn't really age much, does it? Yeah. I mean, it looks kind of like the, what was it? Omega Seamaster cosmic 2000. Mm. I think they had one of these, one of these, uh, these versions. Do you remember? Like they had the, the, this, the normal ones, like the, this typical, uh, I don't know, kind of, oval but like rounded square case but they also had um, i think they had this uh, with the black external bezel oh yeah 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 Yeah. cosmic 2000 automatic it's very similar in design obviously not the same but yeah sort of a neat bezel with a uh i would call it like the numerals and everything are in relief and the background is like a black oxidized finish so mm. just, I think a really clean watch. Yeah. And to me, you know, they made a stainless version with polished lengths. And I think there was even a two-tone version. Some people like the steel one cause it's rare. Uh, I personally think titanium is the way to go here that this is what they were well known for. This is like during the period of IWC and Porsche design. And, and mm-hmm. this watch to me could have been a Porsche design watch just as easily as an IWC. I think mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's just that it's that cool so it's not too late after the porsche design watches right i think it was like around the yeah they they made them concurrently but it was certainly later than like the ocean 2000 you know so it was definitely after that but it was i mean i remember getting catalogs from both iwc and porsche design at the same time and this was this was in that uh collection and of course they had the big porsche design one i i always remark that catalog was super cool and i sold it on ebay and i never should have it was just a neat hardback catalog to have i'm sure i could find another one but yeah probably not for what i sold it for (laughs) cool yeah it is a very cool watch actually yeah very very cool watch thanks yeah so so let's talk a little bit about breitling because i just think it was a neat event and something that you know, I, I don't, I don't go to as many events as, as some on our team and, and even you, I mean, you're, you're working full time in this area and, and you get to go to some neat things. I, I don't. And, um, this one was a, basically Breitling pulled in a number of people to see the release of their new, what they're calling the B02 Chronograph 41 Cosmonaut. So Breitling decided for the, let me get my uh, timing right here. It is 1962. So that is what, 60 years now? Yeah. 62, 40, 50, 60. Yeah. Yeah. So the 60th anniversary of Scott Carpenter's uh, Mercury, Mercury Atlas seven mission, which was, heading into space, 
lightly, let's say. And he, uh, so it was the Mercury seven and he, he did three orbits around the earth and he was, what was on his wrist, interestingly enough, was not a, not an Omega, not a, you know, Timex or a Bulova or anything like that. Um, he was wearing a Breitling and, you know, we'll let, uh, we'll let Fred's interview later tell more about the story, but the bottom line was these, uh, these pilots are, yeah, that were brought into the space program, you know, we're all, if you read the right stuff, there's like a really cool line about how these guys were wearing these big watches and everything and big because back at that time, of course, people were wearing small watches and pilots were wearing these big chronographs, whether it was an Omega or whatever. And I don't know what Scott, uh, Carpenter originally wore, but apparently during training for his, uh, his mission, he went to Australia and was picked up by some some folks in the Australian Air Force who were wearing Navitimers, and he really liked the watch. And he felt, though, that it needed some modification, which was the 24-hour dial that the cosmonaut is well-known for having, frankly, mm-hmm. because you don't know what the hell time it is in space, right? I mean, you're especially when you're banging around the Earth at those speeds, you don't, you don't really know if it's day or night. And so he asked for a 24-hour movement, so they doctored the Venus 178 at that time to, to basically, you know, have the, the hour hands move around once every 24 hours. And he, uh, the, the original one that he had at least also had a much wider bezel than, you know, later Navitimers and, and, and cosmonauts had, or, or even contemporary ones at that time. And the reason was he was wearing gloves. So he needed something larger to grab onto there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so, so yeah, Breitling wanted to show off basically a new commemorative model celebrating that, but they also had some other news and it was a really cool event because we flew into Zurich and there was late one afternoon, it wasn't a long event, but there was a couple hours where they brought us to like a little exhibition hall and they had everything set up and, uh, astronaut Scott Kelly, who's in the, uh, you know, the Breitling squad for, Mm -hmm. I guess, uh, I don't know if it's like adventure or aviation, but he was one of the astronauts who spent like a year in space at the space station. So he was there, he was, he was moderating up there with George Kern and they brought out, um, Scott Carpenter's three children. So his daughter, and then he has two younger sons from, I guess, his second wife. And that was really neat to hear from them about their dad and, and just how, you know, his recollections of the space program and his mission and, you know, just a bit about his life. And cause he passed away like 10 years ago, right? Yeah. I think he passed away in like 07 or 08 or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it was cool for, for Scott Kelly to do the moderating. Cause obviously he knows a bit about space and he could ask some, some really neat questions. And then, um, they brought out, um, uh, Gregory Breitling, who's the son of Willie Breitling. And, mm-hmm. What was pretty incredible. So when, when, uh, Carpenter splashed down to, to earth in the, uh, Mercury seven, he missed. And I, it sounds like I'm blaming him, but bottom line is the landing he made was, was nowhere near the pickup ship, uh, that was supposed to come get him. And, you know, after the, uh, I guess it was Grissom, the event where the capsule sunk, he, he kind of came out of this thing and, 
did everything possible, attaching rafts and all sorts of other things to the capsule to keep it from, from sinking. And he was swimming around quite a bit. And I think ultimately there was a rescue team that got him and hung out with him for a couple hours before the ship did came, but he got his brightling wet. And as we often joke, these old Navitimers and cosmonauts are kind of anti water resistant. So <laughs> the, the watch ended up getting ruined and until that time, until today, you know, nobody's ever known where that watch uh, went, the one that he had on his wrist. It was thought that, okay, it, it was known that he sent it back to Breitling. Because it was, so then he commissioned it basically, and then it was given to him by Breitling, right? Sort of. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and, they, and, one, and they gave one to John Glenn too. So they gave yeah. some to, uh, I guess, at least a couple of astronauts. I don't know about the others in the Mercury program, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah, the one that, um, uh, the carpenter head was ruined, sent back to Breitling. And in fact, what we learned and one of the sons was wearing it is that they sent him a new one and <laughs> the son was wearing it. And it was really cool. He was wearing it like on a modern rubber super ocean strap. Okay. <laughs> it was like so funny, right? It was like, it was like the total, yeah, it's a watch to me, like important, yeah, but it's like a watch just needs yeah. a strap. Yeah, it was really, it was actually kind of, kind of refreshing actually. So the original was thought to have, have been, you know, thrown away or in fact, I think maybe some people thought that the one that Carpenter got was just a refinished version of the old one. And no, um, the watch was kept exactly like it was when it was sent back to Breitling, meaning completely ruined. And while we were there, they debuted this watch for the first time since 1962. They brought it out. Um, they put it up on the screen. We could actually go see it. We didn't touch it, but it was still on its original bracelet, like a kind of a Speedel flex, you know, expanding bracelet. Mm-hmm. And of course, the case looked brand new, but inside looks like a rusty modern art project or something. <laughs> and and it was just so wild to see Balash and. And uh, yeah, Breitling's son. So Gregory said it had been kept in the family and his father, he said he remembered uh, sitting around and his father talking about what do we, you know, the kids were like, oh, why don't you redo it? And his father made the choice, which had to have been like, I I can't imagine the internal decision-making, but they, he decided, no, this is a piece of history. I'm going to leave it at exactly the way it was. And he decided never to open it or touch it. So it still looks like something that came out of the drink. And it was really, it was very neat to see. And they had it next to John Glenn's uh, worn watch from the program. And Mm -hmm. John, John Glenn's watch, I think was sold a couple few years ago at Phillips for like 150, 170,000, which it's crazy the way things have changed. I, I tend to believe if that watch went up for auction today, it would, it would fetch more, but oh yeah. so yeah, they had those two sitting there for us to, you know, behind glass, take pictures of. And so that was really neat to see that. And then of course they, they debuted the new watch, which is kind of an interesting piece. It's, um, it's a limited edition of 362 pieces. So I think you can order it online or at boutiques and, so not many watches. It retails for ten thousand two hundred on strap, and I saw ten five fifty on bracelet. So it's not cheap. Um, it is faithful in the sense that it is a true twenty four hour 
dial and yeah, some, some, some nods to modernity is it has a date at six o'clock, which I'm a bit, well, you can tell not, not, not my thing. It has a sapphire crystal, and instead of the beaded bezel that was in 1962, it has the ridged one, which, you know, the way that Breitling explained this is that Scott Carpenter was an incredibly, uh, he was was a great engineer, and he was always looking for solutions. And, you know, he made the comment that the beaded bezel was pretty slippery, and therefore, you know, they made this choice to go with this bezel uh, because they felt, okay, had he continued to use a a cosmonaut he would have asked for something like that and in fact some of his comments apparently paved the way for that change in bezel so you know they they made some changes that they explained by saying there were improvements at least on this new watch um manual wind bo2 so that's pretty cool uh really pretty uh engraved movement with some uh, highlights around Mercury seven and, you know, that, that type of thing and, and the Aurora seven and Scott Carpenter's name on the back. So that was really neat. And then it says, and here's a little bit of a, let's say a, a little bit of a kick to Omega, the first Swiss wristwatch in space. So that that's the claim around the cosmonaut, which is pretty interesting. And let's see, it has AOAP type wings, um, the one thing that people remarked, and I was talking to Blake from Worn and Wound. Um, how do we say his last name? Bettner? ex Blake. Yeah. And that's his last name. Yeah. And um, his comment was, I think what several of us were thinking, there's one thing that we all sort of wished, and that's that it says cosmonaut on the dial. And it doesn't. It just says Navitimer. And hmm. I think that would have been that would have been a cool little ad, although a lot of text on there. And oh, one other note to to help explain a little bit of the pricing is that the bezel itself is made of platinum, while the rest of the watch is steel. So oh, I wow. I didn't know that, and that was a kind of a a cool little touch, let's say. Um, yeah. Watch was nice. It, it it was really cool, and with just three hundred and sixty two of them, I'm sure they will, you know, make their way right. So oh, sure, sure of it. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if you've you've had a chance to take a look at the watch a little bit. Any um, any any takeaways from you? I saw the the watch online, and I saw the 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 original one, of course, for the, for a few days. Uh, my Instagram was flooded with it. Mm-hmm. Um. By you know people who who were there like you or just uh, like online media. So, but other than that, I I I, I have, obviously I have not seen it. I was uh, I think I was also when was this event exactly? It was a couple was of weeks already, ago. Yeah, I wasn't on the road yet. Yeah, I was I was back in Germany. Um, so yeah, but I I when we went to to the Breitling boutique in Zurich and um, it was too early. They weren't open. Hmm. So I, I wanted to go in, but um, I wanted to check some other stuff out also to Omega, but it was, it was way too early. And by the time they opened, I, I had to leave Zurich. So, um, but I'm sure they had probably had one, right? And I stuff. think it's hitting stores now. Yeah. yeah I, I think so. Display. Yeah. Right. So, um, 
other than that, yeah, sadly I, not. I think it was a cool release. You know, the the Cosmonaut, I think, is one of the cooler watches that Breitling has done. There's something just wild mm. about a 24-hour dial. I, I say, and others remark, I think Fred mentions, you know, takes two, three days to get into reading such a dial. And I agree completely. Uh, it, it's weird. It's very unorthodox to tell what time it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, but but then when you buy this watch, you don't buy it because if it's twenty four hour dial, and if so, then you will you will learn to read it because you want to wear the watch and you want to read it. I guess that's the that's the point. I mean, I understand why it's made that way um, to be historically accurate. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, if you buy it, I mean, you you know, you're not the guy who buys a Breitling because it's a Breitling. Or the guy who buys a Breitling because it's a Breitling, I should say, will not buy this watch. The the person who buys this watch is actually someone who who enjoys its historical significance. And then it's the same thing when you're wearing a way too small or way too large watch because of the movement or because of whatever. You know, it's 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 inconvenient in a way, but uh, you don't wear it for uh, comfortability. You wear it because because it represents something uh, to the brand and to you, obviously. But uh, it's very nicely done. It's very, it's a very, very nice piece. I like the, I like that the, they use this uh, kind of creamy um, faux patina, or whatever you want to call it, but kind of creamy loom on the numerals and also on the hands to to create this more warmth uh, when you look at the piece. I think. Yeah, and on some of the the reissues I've done recently, okay, the comment is that their loom was that color originally. I don't know about this one by sixty two. I really don't. Mm. Uh, but but it looked good, you know. It looked it yeah. looked really nice. I think. Okay, I get the point on not having the cosmonaut name on the dial. Um, for me, the only thing I would have really liked was no date. Uh, I can deal with a sapphire crystal. Um, the no beaded bezel I can get past. I think I would have really liked yeah. uh, lack of date, but uh, otherwise really attractive watch. And honestly, most people didn't even notice the date when they first saw it. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think the original had no Breitling on the dial, right? So that's the thing. Like it had Cosmonaut and Navitimer and this one has Breitling and Navitimer. Not, yeah. I th not, not think you are right. Yes. There's a logo, but no name. So, yeah. but of yeah. course you cannot sell a watch in, 2022 without the, the brand name. oh you can of course but, but why would you yeah but it had to be some some compromise had to be made there yeah so we um we spent some time you know taking a look at the watches they had a really nice uh the historic department at breitling had i don't know 20 odd vintage cosmonauts out from gold plated to solid gold to uh steel with really unique bezels, all black, uh, cosmonauts, which are very rare, wide bezel ones with, with reverse Panda dials. They had really a lot of neat things. Of course, many of mm. them were Fred's, some of them were the museums, but really, a, a cool, uh, a cool display and the ability to go hands-on with some of these. So we did that. They, they of course had the, they had the drinks flowing, which was pretty nice. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, we, we went off to on a, on a little bus to a restaurant and the historic department, basically there were about 25 of us who stayed an extra night. So after the event, whereas most people flew back, uh, many of us stayed for a dinner and it was really, 
maybe an hour, hour and a half of pre-dinner, just sharing watches. People brought some really neat watches. And if you listen to our prior episode on Longine, mm-hmm. you know, one of our collector friends brought some Breitling and Longine pieces that honestly, Balash, even on the Breitling side, we're talking stuff from 30s, uh, 40s that maybe a handful were made and who knows, mm-hmm. maybe those are the only ones left, but tremendous stuff, just incredible stuff, porcelain dial chronographs, you know, just like it, it was like being treated to a, a mini museum, seeing some of these pieces and, uh, well, our, our friend, uh, our mutual friend, you can rock that was there sitting next to me, Mr. Eric. Thanks for the, thanks for the, the soundbite, by the way. Yeah. We're going to use that in uh, later episodes, by the way, but <laughs> so it's like next. a seal of approval. Yeah. This soundbite is a seal of approval. You can rock that. <laughs> so it was nice to see Eric and, and talk Shout to him. To Eric Wynn. Yeah. He was wearing a gorgeous, uh, early sixties Unitime, which was, um, basically a, a, a watch with a, a 24 hour dial, but not a movement and more of a little bit dressier, just a stunning piece. And then there was, uh, I, I don't think I'd met him in person, but, uh, Jose, the, uh, rather mm-hmm. controversial figure periscope. Mm-hmm. And he brought, uh, naturally a, a Panerai and it was a, Oh, you would probably, Let's see if I get this right, Balash. It was a 60s model, and it was a Luminor, so with the typical crown, and it had a Rolex case, but mm-hmm. I want to say an Angelus movement. Uh, chronograph one, Mare Nostrum. Uh, they had uh, 260, uh, 215 calibers in them. I don't know. Um, maybe they used uh, maybe they used the time only for the time only versions. They used used some of the bigger uh, clock um, um, it, it, clock movements, okay. the day clock movements. I'm not sure. Uh, the I think the only chronograph. Uh, um, so the Mario Nostrum was the only chronograph that had um, Angelus movement, but they might have used time only movements in yeah. some of their their I, pieces. Uh, time only pieces, yeah. I think it was, yeah, and 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 it was an eight day movement. You're right, yeah. and it yeah. was that uh, here again, like the uh, the Longine uh, Big Indian I mentioned last time. This Panerai was so impressive; uh, it was just completely and utterly unwearable. Yeah, <laughs> but it was uh, at least for me, and but it was just really. I, I've never held vintage Panerai before. I don't. Have you ever? Managed uh, a few, yeah a few times yeah a few times i mean they're really neat and to hear how you know 30 35 years ago at auctions these things would struggle to break a thousand dollars yeah and yeah it's you know these are six-figure watches now but it was really really neat to see in person so i just looked it up quickly yes and uh, angelus eight day caliber and sf240 uh, was used in in some of the panerais that went to the italian navy and uh, these are the the eight day ones, so it's a uh, power reserve eight day eight day long power reserve in them. And these are the the Marina Militare watches with the Luminor Panerai at the dial at the second uh, running seconds at the nine o'clock position. And the SF two forty is indeed a, a clock 
travel clock movement. So if you can, you can, you can find them. And then I think they also did that. They, they, people bought these, um, clocks with the mo- movements and they made like homages, you know, using the original movement, but nothing else, like probably Chinese or whatever cases and kind of homage or fake, whatever you want to call it, dials. So just to, just to create a, a similar look with the, with the same type of movement. But yeah, it's a Angelus clock movement. Yeah. Uh, so he was, um, he was a really nice guy. I, 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 like I said, I, I, uh, I mean, I think he writes really interesting and, and well-informed pieces. There's no doubt that the guy goes to crazy lengths, um, of researching certain topics. And I find it interesting how he exposes certain lots that come up for sale and how the watches have changed over the years. Um, in person, I would say very, um, you know, as, as, as uh, tough as his articles come off, he's a super nice guy. And that was, it was really, it was nice to meet him. And that watch was just stunning. I'm really glad that he brought it. I, I've, like I said, never gone on hands-on with a Panerai and vintage Panerai. So, so that was neat. And mm. yeah, saw, saw a number of other folks. Um, there was Simon who is, he's written, a, I think a couple articles for Fratello. He has the site Orologium and he's over in the UK. So it's interesting talking to him about the uh, vintage market, but also the modern market because he dabbles in a bit of modern watches and it's kind of interesting talking just about how the modern Rolex market has taken a relative nosedive. <laughs> when I say relative, I mean still out of sight expensive, but you know, you have dealers mm-hmm. sitting out there with heavy stocks of watches that they basically overpaid for and razor thin margins and are now taking losses. And they're getting calls from ADs for new pieces and they've got to move these things out to, to go get them. And that sort of makes me chuckle a little bit because it tells you who these ADs are calling, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's the, it's the same story over and over again. It was, yeah. uh, in, it was in Zurich and the, the, the I did some stories. Isn't it? Yeah, it was uh, this. You saw a lot of uh, exhibition only little plaques in every window, and that's just really, I find it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, you know, it doesn't matter how much men you have, doesn't matter how big your Bentley truck is that you parked by the, by the lake. <laughs> I know maybe, maybe for you, you, you know, maybe you can get it, but it's just, it's just, you know, Bahnhofstrasse in Zurich is obviously the, one of these, these main streets, right? And mean streets and there's all these I don't know Gucci's and and Louis Vuittons and stuff and all the high end watch boutiques and you go to Rolex you go to Bayer and this local um, legendary retailer um, and it says exhibition only for Patek and Rolex and yeah yeah no it's annoying and but it seems to show little signs of cracking right so, so yeah let's see let's see what happens in the future uh, so. It's funny because I met a friend of mine in uh, in Switzerland, and in we we talked about <clears throat> excuse me we talked about watches and and Rolex came up, and I said last time I saw it, and I was the last time I saw him, but like four or five years ago you were wearing your white Daytona, and he said yeah I'm not wearing it anymore, and I said why are you not wearing it anymore? <sighs> mm, I don't feel like wearing this brand anymore, <laughs> and this guy can pick from whatever he wants. And, he says he doesn't. Yeah. 
little bit turned off, I guess. Make it, yeah, make it as you will of it, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other, so let's see some other folks we know. Saw Jeff Stein there, which was nice. And then Thomas was there from our side. And yeah, just uh, good, to, good to run. Ah, oh, Patrick as well, friend Patrick in uh, Belgium. So mm-hmm. nice, nice to run into some folks that uh, hadn't seen in, in two and a half, three years. And yeah, everybody brought some brought some cool stuff. There was, I should say, I got there even the night before because I had some early work meetings to do, and there was a Breitling, the Breitling Americas team. So the retail team hosted a dinner that we were fortunate enough to join, and they had one of those lazy Susans in the ta- in the middle of the table, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I have to say works out pretty well for watches. Yeah, as long as you don't spin it too fast, right? Yeah. <laughs> So it was a pretty cool way to to pass watches around, and there was here again some pretty impressive stuff, and just fun to get out and do that again. So. Exactly, that's what I that's what I want to say. Like, it's it's good to to that that whatever happens in Europe now allow us allows us to to go out and meet people and um, i was i was going to switzerland on the train and as soon as we we arrived to switzerland everybody took off the mask because it's not mandatory to wear a mask in switzerland and public transport it is in germany mm-hmm. so um i guess uh we, you know life is coming back to normal more and more and now we are we are we're using this pre-covid and post-covid like like we use ad and bc <laughs> and kind of everything seems to be back to normal although um, I we are planning a trip to to Asia, and that's not really the case there. No, uh, no. Japan and Hong Kong is still even. I think Singapore is now kind of open, but Japan, not Hong Kong, needs a seven day. I think a seven day quarantine and so on. So not there, but at least in 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 the EU and in the US, it seems that things are kind of sort of back to normal, which allows us to meet and and have these events, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to veer too off of, of the subject, but when I flew in a week ago from Italy, uh, we, we rolled in and I think Lufthansa had, I don't know, six or seven, 747s out there, you know, that mm-hmm. were getting ready to depart. And yeah. just said to my wife, I said, boy, you know, I, I think back to before all this stuff happened, mm-hmm. you had all those and you had the 380s going you know, fully booked to Asia and other places. And, you know, if you've been to the airport recently, it's, it's packed. And could you Mm -hmm. imagine right now if Asia were up and running, it it would be, I don't know how they would handle it because they're not handling uh, this very well right now. There's not enough people and to work at least. And yeah, I guess they say it's a good. That it would be a good problem to have, but it would be a problem that I'm not sure has a solution in the short term. Yeah, they should really monitor what's happening in Asia, and as soon as they see that they're loosening their restrictions, they should start hiring people here. Because if if S hits the fan, then then it's going to be trouble, as you said. And uh, I mean, when I went to Miami, to what was it two months ago? The plane was packed yeah. on the way there and back, and the whole airport was buzzing. So. I mean, and I told you it was a super easy uh, entry process either. I, I spent l- literally five minutes with the guy. Four of them was that we're talking about watches and the watch event and things like that. So, so you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Get your stuff together. Absolutely. 
So, <laughs> yeah. And then I'm just trying to think if there was anything else of, of interest. Well, yeah, they gave us uh, kind of as a parting gift, which was really nice. They gave us uh, Scott Carpenter's daughter wrote a book uh, about her father and she signed the book. And then Scott Kelly has a book, I think, called Endurance about his year in space. And he signed the inside cover. So nice. like pap- paperbacks and I, um, I mean, the autograph is kind of neat, but I'm more looking forward to reading them. They both seem like they would be pretty interesting books. I think the, the year in space would be really interesting. I'm, I don't know mm. if you, I guess you saw the movie, the Martian, but did you happen to yeah. read the book? No, 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 no. I saw, I saw, um, I mean, I watched the, the, the movie, but I, I did not read the book. No. Yeah. So not, not to compare this to that, but obviously being in space for a year and away from your family and that type of thing <laughs> is, uh, I, I'm really interested to, to hear and, and in a confined space and it just sounds like a, like a pretty wild thing to read. So. Yeah, it's uh yeah, you can get pretty claustrophobic after a while and whatever. I think stuff I that would, you would would never so. <laughs> never never even thought would comes out of you would come out of you. Yeah. Um yeah, so next next week we hope we have another one, another episode where we talk about a bunch of things including travels and stuff and I also have a a signed book story, but I don't know if I should if I well, should I think um, you should save it because that's going to yeah. be a cool um a cool episode and i just the some of the pictures you showed me on your travels otherwise around some of the watches and things you saw i think will make for a great episode yeah let's let's hope that uh, we manage next week to or the week after to pull that off and and put everything together and uh, now we have uh, that this week we have fred as the interview uh, well fred's, fred's interview last week we had rj's interview and next week it's going to be my interview so <laughs> I didn't even realize it then. Well, yeah. RJ, you, and me, we both have our, our um, se- interview segments in this three episodes. So Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So shall we let the interview with Fred run? Yeah, let it go. And then uh, just, just say goodbyes now, I guess, beforehand. Absolutely. So, yeah, we want to thank you for listening and hope you enjoy the discussion with Fred on on how the cosmonaut came about and Fred's always a good listen, tons of information. So hope you enjoy. And as Balash said, we're going to take our, uh, we'll take our leave now. So with that, Mike is out of here. Enjoyed the interview. Balash is out as well. Welcome. It's Mike Stockton here in the lovely city of Zurich. And I have the pleasure of sitting next to Fred Mendelbaum, who many of you know as Watch Fred on Instagram. And we're here to mark the release of a brand new cosmonaut from Breitling. And this is pretty, uh, pretty special day because it's the 60th anniversary of the first cosmonaut. And we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the watch and then talk about the new piece. And then who knows where we go from there. So, Fred, why don't you say hello to our audience? Uh, hello to all of you. Pleasure being with you. Uh, talking to you again, Mike, and uh, hello to the audience. Great to have you. Yeah, thank you for being here, Fred. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about the original cosmonaut? Because uh, I think it's a special story indeed. Uh, it is in, in many ways. Uh, now, we've got to uh, go back to the early 60s. Uh, 
to the Mercury 7, who were a very special bunch of men. Uh, they selected the best of the best. This was a strategic project, uh, really launched by, by JFK uh, and uh, finding the best pilots the nation has in uh, the Navy, in the Air Force. Uh, they went everywhere and looked for those that, that were truly outstanding because it was something men had then never done before. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they chose seven alpha male types uh, <laughs> of very, very special guys, very self-assured, uh, and very different in, in many ways. There's uh, the uh, John Glenn, who's uh, turned out to be a politician in the end, and, and you see him as, as the communicator in, in the group. Uh, and then you see the, uh, the only engineer, uh, aviation engineer, in the group was actually Scott Carpenter. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, all of these people are extremely interesting. And then we see Wally Shira, and, and, and they're all their own person, of course. Famous, uh, famous people, yeah. Uh, they're famous people. I mean, they were uh, A-list celebrities then. Uh, there was no newspaper that, that didn't headline uh, these stories. Uh, they had uh, title pages on, on Life and all the other uh, magazines, the true heroes of the nation. Uh, and, uh, okay, so that one hero is actually in many ways an outstanding man. Uh, and uh, what I'll do, I'll, I'll send you a clip uh, where he sums up his, his life. And it's, it's as much uh, of, a, of a life motto uh, than, than anyone would want for himself. I'll send you that clip. Okay. Or we can pause it for a moment and refer to it, and I'll send you the clip afterwards to include. Can we? Sure. Okay. And we're back. I think it is fair to say that I have been and remain a very curious person. And I've had a lot of satisfied curiosity in my time. You've had the chance, really, to live, to live out your curiosity, haven't you? To find out at least a few of the answers you were looking for. Yeah, and uh, satisfying curiosity ranks number two in my book behind conquering a fear. Would you recommend the profession of astronauts for young people? Of course, but uh, so would I recommend learning to be a concert pianist. There are thousands of challenges, and it's got to be to each his own. Every, every child has got to seek his own destiny. All I can say is that I uh, have had a great time seeking my own. Fascinating. Okay, in a way that, that sums up the person. Uh, she was also, uh, always pushing boundaries, uh, always being his own person. So when he uh, went, he was uh, uh, in preparations for the first unmanned uh, Mercury Redstone flights. He went to Australia uh, to uh, support ground control from there. Uh, and uh, there he flew with a squadron of Royal Australian Air Force pilots. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and uh, that was the first time he saw a Navitama because they had issued pieces, all of them, and uh, his reaction was, that's a dandy watch, that's a quote from, from one of his, of his interviews. Wow. Okay, uh, and he says he had never seen anything like it, uh, so he is... Uh, Summing it up, he says, this is what the American astronauts team wants to have. Because he was responsible for navigational equipment, so he felt that it was his decision actually to go ahead. So he wrote to Breitling and told them, guys, lovely watch you have. Okay, great thing. Uh, could you please adapt it to our specific needs? Uh, so the needs are, of course, uh, as there's no day or night as we define it in, in space, uh, to have uh, a 24-hour dial. So uh, he'd be able to run UTC like actually the cockpit clocks in the capsule. Uh, he looked at the dial and said, uh, can you remove that, that hour to minutes? He called it a tacky uh, scale because we don't need that in space. Uh, so we'll have a better readable dial. Uh, and the third thing he said, guys, I'm wearing space gloves. So that dry speed bezel of the Navi timer is, is a bit hard to operate. Can you do a bezel for us uh, that I can operate with space gloves? Uh, so those were the specs, and this is what Brightling delivered. Uh, on as far as we can tell, uh, because there's a letter of uh, Scott thanking Brightling, uh, he received the watch on May 18th, uh, 1962, less than a week uh, before he flew. Good timing. Uh, perfect timing. <laughs> on, on May 19th, he took the time among uh, the latest tests, etc., that he had to do to, to write the letter thanking Breitling for that wonderful watch uh, he'd received uh, and that he'd uh, take on the flight. Uh, so that's the story. So in a way, it's it's more of an astronaut's watch than any other uh, because it's the watch that he designed. Now, to the story of the flight, without going into it too much, uh, you have to understand that the plans for Project Mercury were dry rescues. Okay. Okay? So uh, the capsule landed in water, splashed down, and all the others were actually hoisted by a helicopter to a ship that was standing by very closely. Uh, so all but the first, uh, uh, there, there was a problem with Gus Grissom's. Uh, where the hatch, right? He a blew, hatch, okay, the whatever, there's an endless, yep. there's an endless <laughs> discussion whether it was him or a technical failure or whatever. Uh, and there, Gus Grissom was without a watch in water for 10 minutes and then the capsule sank and was gone. Yep. Uh, now, we, uh, uh, Glenn was perfect. Uh, Glenn really just crawled out of uh, his capsule on the deck of, uh, of, of the ship, as was planned. Didn't get wet at all. Uh, and that was the plan for, for Scott, too. So uh, Scott didn't really care or talk to Breitling about waterproofing the watch because he wasn't planning a dive. Yep. He was planning a flight. Uh, so... Uh, Again, a bit similar to the Gus Grissom thing. Uh, Chris Craft afterwards said uh, the, they admitted there was a technical malfunction, but, but really didn't want to 
talk about it in the records now that uh, we were finally able to, to go through. It was very clear that, that all of uh, the uh, the instruments, the scanner instruments, the horizontal scanner, uh, had failed during re-entry, and there was uh, there's there's people who know a lot about the stuff uh, who'll tell you that it's a miracle that Scott Carpenter brought Aurora Seven back Safe to flight. Earth. Yeah. Uh, they actually said it's it's unbelievable hmm. what he did without uh, all the the orientation systems that should have been available to him. Uh, I'm not the one to judge uh, whether they're right or not, but it sounds very reasonable. They they tell a convincing story to someone uh, like me who, who can't judge uh, if they're right, but it sounds... So, again, uh, he overshot. Yep. He did manage to return to Earth. He did manage not to burn, <laughs> uh, but uh, he uh, overshot the planned landing site uh, by 250 nautical miles, or 463 kilometers to be precise. So, quite, <laughs> quite, quite far, quite, yeah, quite, 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 yeah. quite far away. So, uh, for 40 minutes, nobody knew whether it survived or not. So, there's, there's actually even uh, a notice from, from JFK's private secretary, uh, where she uh, messages, uh, sends him a message during a crisis meeting that uh, Scott Carpenter has been located and that he's alive. So that was, everybody actually feared that, that uh, he had died. So after 40, 40 minutes, they locate him. Uh, after an hour, approximately 59 minutes, if you want to be precise, we've got the first frogman down uh, that helped him. For that first hour, he was totally alone, uh, trying to make sure that Aurora doesn't sink like Gus Grissom's capsule had. Uh, swimming around it, it was listing, it was, it was affixing uh, flotation devices around it. So, I mean, he actually dived alone for an hour and then for another two hours, uh, those two frogmen helped him. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it took three hours until they finally, instead of, instead of him walking out of, of Aurora <laughs> on, on, board, on, <laughs> on, on, on a ship deck uh, until he finally was hoisted into a helicopter another 30 minutes uh, to, to fly him to, uh, to, fly him to, to the ship. But, of course, uh, something so, happened in this uh, period, right? Uh, as I said, uh, I mean, you can't use... Uh, a watch unintendedly for a dive watch for three hours in seawater uh, and hope uh, that uh, nothing will happen. So, yeah, uh, there, there was a bit, a bit of water, a lot of water in the watch in the end. And the watch actually stopped running the more or less the moment uh, he put his feet on, on, on deck of... of uh, uh, oh, wow. Okay. okay. Uh, so what did, did uh, Scott do? Scott says, okay, uh, we'll send it back to Breitling. Mm. Uh, of course, okay. I mean, you can't dive with any of those watches we talked about for four, uh, for three hours. Uh, we'll send it bright, uh, back to Breitling to have it repaired. And then the watch arrives at Breitling, and, and that's one of, for me, I can understand it, but actually at my, I don't know what I would have done, okay? So there's Billy Breitling. By then, he had decided to go into mass production with that, that watch. He had produced 500 more cases and dials and handsets, etc. The first was uh, 
uh, a prototype of one, so nothing uh, to, uh, no replacement parts because they had no times, they had weeks to finish the watch. So he gets it back and, and has all the parts and, and all everything uh, to restore it. And then somehow he, he said, okay, I don't have the right to do that. The moment I change anything on changing that watch, piece of okay, history, right? I'm changing a piece of history irrevocably. Yeah. There's, there's no way back. There's nothing I can do. Uh, so as absurd as it is, he didn't even clean out the crystals, left all the sludge, whatever it is, left it in that watch, put it in the safe, sent Scott Carpenter a replacement watch and the other astronauts too, by the way, and put this watch away in a safe but as for 60 years until so we, today. We, we came to, to show it to the public today. I've known uh, the whereabouts of that watch for some years. I've, I've kept even with close friends rather quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have kept quiet. And I, yeah. think, I, I, I think before we go on, it, it's one of those watches that probably 10 or 15 watches out there that people speculate on where yeah, they've there's, been. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation. You know, and there were, Buzz Aldrin's watch yeah, and this and that. And, and, and this is one of those pieces that I think most people felt that it was thrown away, felt that they redialed it. I, I don't think there anybody... There lots of theories. Uh, incorrectly restored, whatever. Yeah. Okay, many people, again, because Scott started, uh, Bratling did uh, their, their first Scott Cup at the Cosmonaut in 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Breitling said, we don't know where it is. And they really didn't, didn't by the way. At the time. Yeah. Okay, at the time. Uh, we assume it's in a collection somewhere or whatever. So all of us Breitling interested collectors for years were, yeah, talking about theories where that watch could have ended up. Actually, many believed that it had been destroyed. So uh, we're showing that. And for me, again, I'm, I'm deeply grateful to, to Willi to have that respect mm, to, keep uh, it. to keep that because again him not having the right if he felt that he, he, he was so lucky to be part of history to be called by and again we have to understand Willy really, really was crazy about space travel mm. uh, did his own Sputnik desk clock and uh, there's uh, he did advertisements in, in uh Reader's Digest way with theories about uh, baby moons and satellites and men flying to the moon and space stations, whatever. So he was totally into it. And that was probably the reason why, why he hesitated and said, OK, I might have 1,100 watchmakers in, in, my, in my employ and I might have all the parts to, to make it new, but I'm not going uh, to do it. I'm going to leave it as it is. So that's, what, so that's a piece of history. Uh, and uh, in a way it was similar uh, so people are asking us why isn't it the re-edition mm. why isn't it the same why didn't you do a beaded bezel why didn't you do a white bezel etc etc uh, and, and in a way there's a similar spirit here I, I didn't, we didn't think we have the right to do a copy uh, that looks just like the, the original, original Carpenter had looked uh, because it's too important to watch in a way mm-hmm. uh, to just do a well, re-edition of it. Replica, yeah. So what we actually decided is what would, if, if Scott would have sat next to us, what would he have wanted? So we addressed uh, his primary criticism uh, about the bezel, even 
if people aren't wearing space gloves on a daily basis, there was an issue with those beaded bezels. Uh, and Willie listened, and about a year after Scott flew, Willie actually changed the bezel on all Navi timers, mm-hmm. okay, influenced by that experience with, uh, with Scott probably. Uh, so that's what we did. We took the improved bezel, uh, but made it unique again by making it out of platinum. So it's the only oh, okay. bezel made out of platinum on a Navi timer, so it's unique That's to that nice one. Yeah. Okay, so it's just, again, it isn't, it's a tribute in the way that, I mean, I, I've had a bit of, of uh, the the, uh, uh, the possibility to, to help in, in, in making that watch uh, a reality. So it's a true tribute. It's done by someone who loves the original, and who has respect for the story. And I think, in the end, that's what the watch expresses. So we didn't put Cosmorot on the dial uh, because this was something that, that Scott didn't really like a lot. Uh, Interesting. Okay. Uh, so it is a Scott, uh, it is a non-Cosmonaut on dial Cosmonaut. Again, in tribute to Scott. Uh, uh, it has no uh, our minute track, of course. It's, the dial is as readable as it could be. We had an intense discussion internally, and I lost, by the way, uh, in a discussion with Sylvain Bernaron, who's the creative director and happens to be a very nice person. Uh, Absolutely, he is okay? great. Uh, and and we, often, we argue for hours. <laughs> and they said, look, Fred, very, would Scott have wanted a well-integrated date on that watch? Him being the technical guy. Probably, yes. Yeah. Right? So the answer was, I couldn't have said no, he wouldn't have. <laughs> I think that, that uh, Scott actually didn't care about purism in any way. He wanted the most functional piece uh, that, that we could give him. So in a way, that's what it is. It's, it's a true tribute. It's relatively rare. We did uh, 362 pieces. I would have love to done less because there's there's still commercial interest uh, (laughs) in that in that company so I've I've tried to make it uh, a relatively small production run uh, and it is and uh, yeah I mean there's things about the watch that you probably haven't noticed you're wearing uh, as as we're we're doing that in a uh, in audio uh, with Mike sitting here wearing a lovely, absolutely breathtakingly lovely uh, cosmonaut uh, that, that's uh, something to, to envy, really. And uh, the interesting thing is we managed... This one has a case height at the bezel of uh, 11.25 millimeter. Okay. And the re-edition has 10.9. Oh, wow. So it's almost invisible, but it's even slimmer than the vintage original was. That's great. And with a heart that is as modern, we've got about uh, 70 hours power reserve, uh, chronometer certified, lovely decorated again. Man- the control, manual wind. Uh, manual, manual wind. It's, it's truly a beauty of a movement. It's uh, as high tech as, as any uh, mechanical movement can be nowadays. Uh, and uh, India, it's still, and the watch is, is slimmer than the original was, which is uh, something that, pretty impressive. Uh, that's, yeah. It's not and typical it's, these no, days, it's, right? No, it's very atypical. You see the purest mind uh, behind it, but, but actually the purest that, that does tribute and not copy. Yeah. 
No, I, I, I have to say I'm pretty impressed with the, uh, the modern version here today. And I think my, you know, my original concern was maybe the date window, but uh, to your point about what would Scott have wanted and the fact that it's so well integrated, like we saw in the Navitimer, just yeah, the I debut. Yeah, it's better here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it, it, okay, it really, I mean, you really have to look twice yes. or three times. A lot of people uh, here didn't notice it. Yeah, actually. I mean, it, it's so. really hard to notice, but the function is there. And as I said, this is what I assume Scott would have wanted. Uh, and it's as as discreet as, as you can do it. So, so uh, you know, just for, just because we're a couple watch people here talking, you know, the Cosmonaut for me was always just sort of this kind of oddball, um, very, very specific version of the Navitimer, you know? And I remember when I found mine that I'm wearing today, and, and as always, I consulted with you before buying it, and uh, I remember getting it home and wearing it for a few days, and it's a bit of a, you, you have to change your mind around a little bit to read the time on it, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely no doubt. It takes me about three or four days until I get used to it. <laughs> uh, but it's cool. It's so cool. Okay, it's so None neat. of us, none of us are one watch people. No. Okay. Uh, this is a collector's watch. This is an enthusiast's watch. This isn't your daily beta watch as as well as, as it would probably serve you. Uh, it isn't. No, that's a collector's. That's an enthusiast uh, piece. It's, it's part of, of history. But I think this watch just goes along with a lot of the other interesting developments around that period or even before from Breitling that to me make them really the king of, of vintage chronographs. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's so typically Willy, okay? It's, uh, I mean, it's totally absurd. It does things that, that sound totally unreasonable. Uh, now, we've got maybe influenced by that, that uh, situation of the problem of, of doing a truly dive watch capable Navi timer. Mm. It come up again and again, and it comes up today, by the way, and even today, the only way to do it uh, is a very complex, gear-driven, uh, inner-rotating slide rule uh, solution. Uh, really wasn't one to compromise, okay? You can't do... We've got others trying to emulate the Navi timer mm. with a setting crown. You, it's, it loses all its functionality. It yep. looks like a Navi timer, but you can't use the slide rod. Now, yep. you may say, who uses a slide rod anyway? Uh, but then who needs mechanical watches? Sure. And, or and or a thousand you, meters uh, of and, depth. And, yeah. Okay, so we're talking about pushing boundaries, yeah. special functions, and you can't compromise on functionality. If you do have a slide roll chronograph, it needs to be a perfect slide roll chronograph. Uh, and the only way to do it, and Billy was crazy enough to do it, was a 48 millimeter watch. And it was 1967 mm -hmm. when he set out to design that. That was decades before the, the big watch craze. But he wasn't driven by big watches, will be it's in one day. Right? It was pure functionality. Yeah. You want a professional slide, slide roll watch, you need to have a rotating outer bezel uh, geared uh, to an inner bezel 
to allow you 20 ATM dive watch Navi timers. Actually, what Scott should have worn in hindsight, uh, although it was unplanned. Well, you know what was funny is uh, I flew in uh, last night from Frankfurt, and it was uh, raining. And it's been raining most of today, and I just thought to myself... I'm wearing one of the most anti-water-resistant watches, and I, and I was thinking about Scott Carpenter yeah. and his experience, and just ironic that it was rainy weather today in, in and way, yeah. <laughs> this watch on. Although, actually, most of my Navi timers keep up well over, over, over decades, and, and there's yeah. little happening. Just have to but be yeah, careful. No, no sure. you have to be but careful, and don't, anyway. and, don't, and don't misuse it as a dive watch if you can. But if, you're, if, if your choice is either that the capsule sink, the next one yeah. sink, okay, <laughs> uh, to the bottom of the ocean, or dive to save it, uh, you wouldn't think about the watch you have on your wrist, I hope, uh, and neither Probably neither, neither no. did Scott. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, Fred, I really appreciate uh, coming together with you here briefly. I know we talk a lot on the side, and, and thanks for for uh, taping this for us. And yeah, great watches today. Great to see the original back out. And actually, we saw John Glenn's watch too, right? Yeah, so that's... that was that was pretty impressive as Isn't well. Isn't that bad, and is it? No, and, and thank you for bringing some lovely examples of the, the cosmonaut through history. So thank you again. Most welcome. It's a pleasure as always. Thanks.